This is Continuum Drag, a weekly podcast where we watch sci-fi, fantasy, and everything in between. This week, Forever Night, Season 1, Episode 6 and 21. I don't drink blood anymore. At least not human. And I don't sleep in a coffin. How many years have you been alive? 800. That's fantastic. And scary. And weird. 800 years. And you know the best part? (laughs) It's a huge relief. At least I haven't gone crazy. Welcome to Continuum Drag, the podcast broadcasting to the Soviet Union by Radio Free Europe. I'm Luke, here with my co-host Jordan. What's real, Jordan? Hold on, I got a, I got a little quote here from the show I liked. It was, uh, let's how they say in America, take five minutes. Hmm. <laughs> That's how they say it in America. Let's take five minutes. <laughs> well, this week we are joined by returning guest, Steve. Welcome back to the program, Steve. Or Steven, I never know which way to go. Either way works for me. I'm just happy to be here. You can call me whatever you like. Fantastic. It's been a little while. I think it was Wangaliers, if I'm not mistaken. You know, we got together for a British show that looked really good and had some like Game of Thronesy people on it. Was that after the Langoliers? Oh, that might have been. What was that one called? Otherworld? No. Uh, Space Town? Um, yeah, something terrible. Uh, uh, ghosts looked great. <laughs> ghosts were there. Were ghosts in it? Yeah. And they went to a Space beach. Cop? They ended up in the water. Yeah, yeah. Was, they found was, all those, those fossils. That's right. And uh, the family hugging, and then they ran away. Space four. So, you guys are selling this like no one's business. <laughs> yeah. What's it, it called? It was a great Jordan? episode of podcasting. Terrible. Well, I don't remember. Show. Don't ask me. Jordan, what was it called? You remember? Tech war. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, it wasn't uh, the one on the moon, the Marvel one on the moon. So that was no, good. it wasn't uh, whatever that one was called. Inhumans. Inhumans. God, that was punishment. <laughs> that giant dog, though. What a good time. Well, before we get into this week's Forever Night, I thought we'd do a little a little game and give us and give us uh, some something to do before we get started. Um, but before that game, there's a prelude to the prelude. Uh, I've got a little background on the show Forever Night, just to help you get ready for the game. Uh, it was created by two gentlemen, Barry Cohen and James D. Perot. Perret Perot, I'm going to say. And Jordan, you remember James D. Perot, don't you? I don't know if I do. Oh, you do, for sure. You love him. You're one of his biggest fans. Am I? What, what, what did he do that I would have seen? He was a creator of Misfits of Science. <laughs> oh, is that right? Yeah, it was. It's the same guy. Hey, that's that's, I mean... Good for him that he's had a two very different TV shows, um, neither one terribly successful. But you are a big fan of Mrs. Science. Uh, th- I like parts of it. <laughs> and you're a big fan of this too, right? Uh, I am not a... Uh, yeah, spoiler, I am not a big fan of Forever Night, no. Well, the other creator, Barry Cohen, he wrote the feature film Friday the 13th Part 4, otherwise known as The Final <laughs> Chapter... But it wasn't the final chapter. Not by a long shot. No. That's pretty good, though. That's a pretty good uh, uh, notch having your belt. Yeah, those are two interesting creators involved in this show. Um, And this is important because what we're going to do is we're going to play a game of Echo. Oh, Echo. Yeah, yeah. Steve, do you know what Echo stands for? No, this is new to me. I'm excited, though. 
It's the, you got E, which is for Emmy. Well, let me explain it to him. Echo is an amalgam <laughs> for the uh, idea of the EGOT. Ah, uh, okay. So we're going to say, did this show win in, win in the categories, any of the creatives, basically? And it is creators, obviously, but any of the writers and directors involved, and also the cast, any of the main creators, if they've won awards in four categories, and those four categories are Echo, Emmys, any Canadian Film Award, the Hugos, and the Oscars. Okay, and this is not for Forever Night. It's anything they've ever worked anything on. Anything they've ever worked on. Okay. If it was just for Forever Night, I can guarantee you they did not win an Oscar. <laughs> yes, agrees. Yeah. So we've got four categories, and I wanted you to try to guess how many awards they've scored at each of these in each of these categories. Like the sum total of the twenty. 40 plus people who worked in like a key creative role. Uh, first up, the Emmys. What do you think? How many Emmys do you think the uh, creatives behind this have won? Are we guaranteed a number above zero? Is it a, a quantity or no, it could be zero? It could be zero. Oh, shit. I'm going to say three. Three. Writers, directors, three seasons of Forever Night. All seasons are included. All seasons are included. That's <laughs> that's like 20 plus episodes a season. Look, this was, this was uh, a glory. Like the early 90s were fantastic for television. So, yeah, let's go. I'll go five. I'll, I'll go up on, on Jordan. Five Emmys. Well, Jordan's correct. It was three Emmys. Wow. Hey, pretty good start. Next category, any Canadian award. <laughs> Okay, so I know that Forever Night won one thing. It was nominated for 14 things and only won one. So if it won, if the creatives won three Emmys, Canadians, Canadian Television Awards probably gave them five times as many. So I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say less than five. I'm gonna say ten. Ten Canadian awards. I'm I'm gonna say one. One Canadian award for the entire creative team behind. Yeah. Jordan, you're bad at this. It's 47. <laughs> 47. <laughs> Holy moly. 47 Canadian words. Basic price is right rules means that yeah. I was closer without going over. So I'm going to take that one for me. Jordan, we've discussed this before that if you have made something in Canada, if you wait long enough, you get an award. So you should have That's really true. been higher than that. <laughs> That's true. That's true. You, you guys have awards, right? Don't you have Canadian podcasting awards? You've been on long enough. Steve. No, no. We, but we assume if we keep going, eventually we'll get going. one. <laughs> right. You're holding I mean, out I hope. will say, one of, the, one of the Canadian Screen Awards was just a uh, Lifetime Achievement Award. So. <laughs> <laughs> and Steve, you're correct. They've only ever won one Forever Night Canadian Screen Award. Uh, do you know which award that was and who won it? No. Is it like sound design? I saw a lot of sound design nominations. It was not. It has one win, a Gemini, for Best Supporting Actor, Nigel Bennett, the uh, uh, vampire mm. LaCroix. Canadian uh, John Delancey. <laughs> That's a good description. <laughs> Canadian John Delancey. Absolutely. If this was made in the States, it would have been John Delancey for sure. But Now, that's that's that guy's from Lex, right? He's just from everything Canadian, I think. Okay. All right. That, I remember seeing him in Lex. That was a show I never watched but knew that it was on television, so... All right, let's move on. How many Hugos do you think the creative team behind this has won? I'm going to say two. 
I'm gonna say three just to be different, but I I I, I don't know what to think anymore after my yeah. last uh, my last guess. Well, it's had two nominations but no wins, my friends. Oh wow, okay, mm, zero. Huh? And finally, Oscars. How many Oscars do you think the creative team behind this has won? One. I say zero. It is zero. No one on this was anywhere near an Oscar-winning film. <laughs> so no Oscars, but forty-seven Canadian awards. Forty-seven Canadian awards. Jordan, you had three seasons. You know these people got awards. You're right. I should have guessed better. They had awards for things like such Canadian classics as Snakes and Ladders, Human Cargo, John A. Birth of a Country, Trudeau. Uh, John A. Birth of a Country. Good one. I All your that, favorite. That Canadians. still might be shown in Canadian uh, schools. <laughs> John A. Birth of a Country. He's on the five dollar bill, isn't he? It probably holds up, right? It probably isn't problematic. <laughs> Is Laurier in the five dollar bill? Oh, it's Laurier. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> I haven't seen seen money in a long time. <laughs> I just uh, just to return. I I've been furiously looking it up. It was Outcasts, the BBC show, show that we watched. Oh, thank you, Outcasts. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Now it makes sense. Yeah, there, there was a lot of. Yeah. British ghosts. Yeah, so looked so awesome. So disappointing. <laughs> it definitely had the budget, but maybe not the idea. Mm-hmm. Well, are you guys ready to get in Forever Night? Yeah, let's do it. Fired up. Here's the IMDb summary for Season 1, Episode 6, Dying to Know You. While investigating the kidnapping of two Toronto socialites, Nick finds himself <laughs> working with a psychic who he fears will discover his dark secret. I have I have lots of questions, guys. Just so that for the record, N- not only were these my first two kind of episodes of watching for the podcast, I was aware of Forever Night's existence, but never ever watched it. I was like too young. It was on too late. It's very steamy. I should not have been watching it at the age that I was when it came out. Uh, and I have some background information if you haven't covered that yet. I'm I was super super intrigued. But my first question is the the flashback kind of take on this show was that present in episode one and two was it a lot of like intercutting and flashbacks and things like that absolutely that is i think the uh part of the part of the structure of the show okay very interesting take i can see why they won all those canadian screen awards (laughs) i'm gonna i'm gonna counter with i don't think it's an interesting take (laughs) i think it's detrimental to the show i would argue you didn't like the the intercutting between the woman in the bathtub and the uh, murder and well, that's that's a little bit it? different. That's that's a good beginning to this because this is this one's slightly different in terms of the intercutting of um, uh, uh, this as Luke is saying these two I guess wealthy ladies we're going to learn they're a mother and a daughter mm-hmm. uh, out shopping and intercutting. Where are they shopping, Jordan? I don't know where what where were they shopping? That was. Uh, Bloor and was it Bloor and Osgood? <laughs> I thought it might have been Bloor and Bay Street. Bloor and Bay. I thought it was just like one block over, but yeah, it's definitely along that strip of Bloor. Yeah, yeah for definitely sure. in the Bay Street area. <laughs> yeah, brutalist architecture, uh, for sure, kicking around. No streetcars came by, so I wasn't sure. <laughs> yeah, this was very fun for that. Anyone who grew up in Toronto will get a kick out of being like, oh, you can't take that street to that street. <laughs> that limo drove for four hours and they cut it into a 10 second montage it was uptown it was downtown it was on the lake shore it was great but as uh, as uh, steve uh, alluded to the, what we had is these ladies uh, shopping and going into their limo and what's intercut with it is it's not explained yet but we're going to see 
just a woman it looks like she's just getting ready i think she's getting ready to have a bath is what it is but it it, it explains later who she is but i like that this really doesn't there's no reason she's having a bath it's just like wouldn't that be sexy no there's a reason she was just doing this aerobics i uh, okay sure, <laughs> sure we saw her doing great 80s aerobics yeah but there's no reason for her doing aerobics it's not like it's not like it tells you anything about her or what she does well, we know she's fit, Jordan. She's fit as hell. <laughs> You're right. They filmed nude scenes uh, for the German audience and release of this this show. Is are you right? serious? There's a nude version of the show. One hundred percent. There are. There was. There was nudity shot for this show for the German television release of it that was edited out of Canadian and American television. So much so that there's a full frontal like shot in the opening credits. It's one of those like hide a, a naked lady behind a thing when he flips open his his mm-hmm. badge, and it covers like her shame as they used to say <laughs> in the early nineties. It's ridiculous. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, this is the steamy show we've watched, and I was on a Man and Machine episode. <laughs> do you know? Did Nick do a full frontal? Because I'm very interested. I I would be I'd be in for it because he's a handsome guy actually, and the ladies just love this guy. I think he's using his vampire powers. Spoiler, <laughs> he's a vampire. The audience knows that, right? You've told them yeah. in the first two episodes? Okay. No, we kept that from them. And Luke got angry at me because I didn't know it was called Glamour. He's glamoring them. Oh, he's glamoring them? Okay. That's he the, is ready to tell, like, he's ready to glamour and tell women his secret at the drop of a hat, which he I He doesn't love. mind. He doesn't mind letting no. people know. Well, there's a good chance they will die. So, like... There is a very good chance. 50-50, even. Yep. <laughs> well, Jordan, as you're saying, these two wealthy uh, wealthy socialites are out in the town. They're going shopping. They're getting makeovers. They're having a great time. And when they uh, leave their uh, very surly driver in his uh, limousine, a, another man, also dressed as a limo driver, walks up and, like, knocks on his window, and he rolls it down. That man jams a needle into his throat, murdering him, and says, You're fired. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I knew we were off to a good start. That that guy had a catchphrase ready to go. I think this is our best cold open, though, isn't it? Like finishing right there. I think that's best. That's the best the show could do. You think this is the best one we've ever seen, or just for Forever Night? I uh, for Forever Night. Oh, I think for any show ever. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Sliding scale. Right, woman in the bath, and the you're fired line, because then she picks up the phone and calls the police station, and then like, there's been a kidnapping. <laughs> that's and right. Reveals that that she is a psychic. And apparently also works for the police force full-time, it seems like. Well, that's it. She's uh, she's there because these two women are kidnapped. And um, we cut to a police investigation in full swing. They found the limo. It's in a warehouse. And uh, Nick and Shanky, of course, are uh, leads of the investigation. But Captain Stonetree has invited the psychic in to help and has not mentioned it to anyone. She's just walking around the crime scene just touching stuff willy-nilly. Are you pronouncing his name Shanky? Because they... They call him Skanky repeatedly. <laughs> yeah, well, I, it's hard to say Skanky so many times. That's what they. That's his name. At one point, they call him Skank. <laughs> like that's his nickname. Yeah, that's his nickname, and I think it was in the next episode. But they full on call him Skank. The only thing I was interested in was uh, one that he's grown sideburns from the from the pilot. He didn't have sideburns, and then in the next episode, the sideburns have gotten even more aggressive. And he also dyed his hair. His hair wasn't this really? color before. It wasn't this dark. Like, who's he fooling? What did you feel about Nick's goatee? Uh, I mean, it's always curious when, when vampires can keep, like, growing facial hair. Like, he's dead, right? Do you think that's a, it's like a Superman thing? He can't grow a beard? 
Well, Superman's not dead. Yeah, but can he grow a beard? I think he can. He can grow a beard. He just has to, he has to cut it himself with his, his lasers. <laughs> with his laser he vision. He shaves in the mirror. Well, I think if Superman can grow a beard, so can a vampire. They're the same creature. Fair enough. They're, Fair they're enough. both undead aliens <laughs> from another planet. I'm sure you're going to talk a little bit about the crime scene, but there's one point where Skank and Vamp are playing tic-tac-toe with the body outlining chalk. <laughs> They have fun. They have fun, those two. Who did somebody, if they wrote that, give them another Canadian Screen Award. And if those two guys just came up with it on the day, applause. Like, just just a fantastic set piece for no reason. I think I want to spin off of this show called Vamp and Skank. <laughs> well, they're there. They've all finally meeting at the crime scene. They're realized that Captain Stone Tree is pairing them with this psychic. And unsurprisingly, given Skanky's character, he uh, doesn't like psychics much. Uh, mostly, he says, because once one told his wife that he was going to die, so she made him start eating tofu. Yeah, she put him on a diet. Which is funny, because it ends up being a lead-in to uh, a joke at the end where uh, Skanky takes a bite of a tofu burger, and it's like, what is this? <laughs> they really had a lot of tofu jokes set up for this episode. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the, also the idea was, in the early 90s, the idea of tofu was so foreign and crazy that isn't it, isn't it hilarious that someone would eat tofu? Being healthy in the 90s was a slippery slope. I would bet there's a sushi joke somewhere in this series at some point. <laughs> um, can I just say, we should mention, it's Psychic Denise, which I, I thought was a good name for Psychic. Right. I'm not going to call her by her name. I'm going to call her Psychic. <laughs> psychic Denise. Come on now. <laughs> and, and the captain says that she gets results, so you know she's good. Oh, she's good, Jordan. She's the real deal. And the bereaved uh, husband and father of the victims does kind of call it out. He's like, aren't psychics a last resort as opposed to the first resort? I did like that, in too. This yeah. And they're like, no, no, no. Trust us. The Canadian police force goes immediately to psychics. Have you met our two detectives, Nick and Stanky? <laughs> Terrible. Terrible detective. <laughs> One's a vamp and the other one doesn't understand eating healthy. Well, the crime of the week, of course, is their kidnapped rich mother and daughter are part of the Hedges family. And uh, Hedges, the, the patriarch of it, he's a wealthy philanthropist who runs a charity called Human Touch. And everyone considers him a saint. He's, he's the best man who's ever lived to the point that no one has any issue that he also just is filthy, filthy rich. I believe, I believe the psychic at some point argues it's like, why can't a man who helps people be the wealthiest person you've ever met? Why, why doesn't he deserve that? <laughs> it was kind of what was weird about this show was there were so many scenes of this superfluous conversation like that's halfway through the show and vamp is talking to the psychic and they're having this diatribe about whether or not a, a philanthropist should be rich standing outside of his mansion for far too long having this conversation it's really funny because they really need us to like think he's i mean or like i guess they don't need us to think this but the whole plot is like he's above reproach so he couldn't be involved like that's the big twist they're going to try to build to and I don't think it was crazy in 1990, but I'm just like, as soon as you see, like, a really rich guy who's famous for, like, doing nice things, you absolutely know that man did something horrible. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think even, like, I mean, obviously we're not ruining anything at this point, but even structurally for this show, did everyone assumed right away that he was the killer or he was involved in some way, right? I mean, I might be radicalized, but I just assumed as soon as they introduced a billionaire, I was just like, well, he did it. <laughs> Yeah, I gave it to like the first scene. He was still, I was still on the fence about whether or not he had he was involved, but by scene two, where he was 
kind of butting heads with the police officers. I was like, okay, yeah, clearly you're you're involved. Although his Mel Gibson style ransom video, um, where he he declared, "Give me back my family," I quite enjoyed. <laughs> well. They don't, they're not on to him to begin with. They're on to the limo driver. He's the initial suspect. But, of course, the psychic proves her worth by having a vision of the driver being dead inside of a very cramped space, which leads them to find him stuffed into an air vent. And uh, mostly I think this is this there to let us know. It's like, this psychic, she's legit. Right. But there's some issues that they're having, which I think are funny that right away you see there's problems because she's a, as you say, Luke, she's a legit psychic. So she's able to solve the crime or at least see see things but it's being interfered with because she keeps seeing these weird uh glimpses of other things and what we know obviously as an audience is it's it's um nick's backstory and it's things he has done from the past these sort of like you know crimes or whatever it would be so it's interfering but i like that he even seems to know that right off the bat when she starts mentioning these things he's like oh that sounds like my story and he's like let's just keep it going like there's no there's no effort on his part to disassociate it all inside of let her kind of do her thing while he's, I don't know, you know, God forbid, does some police work. Yeah, he's either intentionally messing with her or the worst detective of all time. Because she's like, I see a full moon and, and a shape flying through the through the sky, you know, and a big blonde guy with sharp teeth. And he's just like, he just keeps standing right beside her while she's trying to pick up other ESP. And it's like, maybe just leave the room or put a towel over your head or do something <laughs> to like... You know, block the waves, hold some tinfoil up, do something. What I liked is that her initial psychic flashes, which is very convenient for us, Jordan, seeing as we've only watched two other episodes of the show, they were all from the pilot. So I was like, oh, I know what these are. I know what all these scenes are. So so you had met that, that character uh, that lived in a barn before? Well, let's talk about that because that's actually different. But initially what it is okay. is they're showing scenes from when Nick was sired and became a vampire. But as the show progresses, uh, they'll introduce uh, like legitimate flashbacks to earlier in his life. And let's just go through the flashbacks because they're a very small side angle of this show. But the flashbacks we're introduced to as the B story are when Nick lived in Pilgrim times. <laughs> and... It's very funny. I love his silly wig. I love his little facial hair that he has to wear in the regular episode, too, because I guess they couldn't figure out how to get him to shave it off in between. Yeah. He's moved in, I guess, with a pilgrim. Apparently, some pilgrim found Nick wandering around and offered to let him live in the barn. And this pilgrim is just like, what a weird occupation you have. Nighttime hunter. But he's just apparently let this man live in his barn. But I guess what we're supposed to see over the course of the episode, which we see only flashes, really all the flashback stuff takes place in a barn between Nick and another man in a pilgrim wig. And the pilgrim man just keeps being like, I thought I saw you flying around killing things with your teeth. And he's like, no, yeah, I don't think you did. And the gaslighting Nick does to this pilgrim man who took pity on him leads the pilgrim man to hang himself in his barn because he's lost his mind or his faith or something. And... This sort of series of flashbacks is supposed to be a parallel to what he's doing to the uh, psychic. It's supposed to be he's 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 reliving a thing he's done once in his past, and will he do it differently this time? Right, and I, I'll say this: it's it's not the greatest connection between these two, but at least it, it informs it a little bit of like at least this guilt that he could be affecting someone in this negative way because he's holding this secret. But I'll at least give it in this episode, there's like a tenuous connection between the flashback. The next episode, it makes no sense at all. Like the flashbacks, you're like, I'm just watching two boring episodes jammed together. So at least in this yes. episode, there's something connected. Was he, were they lovers, the pilgrims? <laughs> I got a lot of vibes. Like they, they, there was a connection there and he kept insinuating. He was like, 
getting the fox out of the hen house. Right? Like he kept giving him the eyes and talking about this fox that's bothering it's the, his It's chickens. the 1600s. to love that. Cannot bear its name. I, I mean, they're in the barn a lot. And he's like stroking the horse and talking to him. I felt like I felt good chemistry between them. It's a vampire show. He's a sexy vampire. I think that's completely on the table. Like that's that's par for the course for this genre. So yeah, probably. All right, I'm down. At any rate, we got to get back to this crime. And in the crime, uh, you know, Nick has a partner. His name is Skanky. But Stone Tree's decided to break up that partnership temporarily so that Nick and the psychic can have a flirty little partnership of their own. Yeah. If if there's someone around, Nick will flirt with them. That's just what he as a vampire does. Well, to be fair, he's just, you know, kind of broody. And every woman who meets him is like, whew, I can fix this. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to look into the crime, and what's come in is that a million-dollar ransom has been asked for for the two women, and they head over to Hedge's mansion just to check it out, and while she's there, she is interfered with by Nick's past killings, but for the most part, she does pick up that there's some domestic squabbles happening in the house, so they get a sense maybe not everything is uh, as it seems, and Hedge's... He doesn't have a lot of money, apparently, liquid. Even though he lives in this house, he's only able to put together $500,000 on short notice. So they're, they're, waiting, they're waiting for the kidnappers to call so they can set up a place to like at least attempt to drop off the first amount of money. But as they're waiting, a call comes in. Skanky lets them know the wife has been found murdered. So, you know, one of the hostages is already dead. Yeah. Yeah, and he doesn't use the word murdered. He's like, yeah, we found the wife. Her throat's been slit. And then they cut to it. Like this was this this was harsh for Canadian television in the early nineties. Well, to be fair, it wasn't on Canadian television. So. It never was on. It was just filmed here. It was just filmed. This is a CBS program. Wow. Okay. And then they just it it was rough. It was a little a little shocking. I'll, I'll give them that though. I was surprised they killed the the mother right away because I thought mm-hmm. they would. You at the end of the show, they would both get back safely. But I'm like, well, there's that's something. At least they they've added some sort of tension of like people can die i was just gonna say this was in the scene where the psychic is kind of walking around the house and ends up discovering was it divorce papers in the bathroom i'm not sure it's divorce papers she's just having flashes i think she was having a lot of flashes of like domestic squabbles oh no she definitely picked up papers like with letterhead on them in the bathroom mm, it interesting. was now they didn't show a toilet or anything because they got to keep it classy <laughs> but there were there was clearly a bar and and maroon colored towels and a series of papers that she picked up and it was right before she went to the daughter's bedroom and then of course got more flashes of vampire backstory i'm gonna say that would be embarrassing if the flashes she had was just you in the bathroom (laughs) so whistling to yourself yeah (laughs) full full on esp now i know this is like episode six and again i'm jumping in here but like vampires are real that is but secret but yeah. psychics are full on, one hundred percent legit, and they are known to police. Well, just this one. <laughs> yeah, but this one is employed, right? So much so that Skanky has like a grudge against police use of psychics. Like it's really interesting this world that they're creating. <laughs> it's deep. It's a deep place. A lot of canon. A lot of backstory. <laughs> Well, there, later on, uh, to Steve's point, there, I think it's in the next, uh, I think it's right after the scene where he does the video pleading before his daughter's life. Like, there's a there's a quick scene of a reporter asking uh, Skanky uh, information, um, and she sort of flatters him. So he does, you know, he goes on record that accidentally reveals they're using a psychic. But he, he does at one point, he said, he's like, he's complaining that he's the only one do, doing police work. And I was like, he does have a point. 
He truly is. He's the only one investigating the case. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, I know he, well, I know he's supposed to be like kind of like comic relief, the person you're not supposed to like. I'm like, but he's the only one doing work. Like literally Nick's walking around trying to be all broody and not doing anything. And then she's all psychic and up. And he's just like, I guess I'll just go investigate this murder. Yeah. So much so that he found the body. Yeah. Right. He wasn't like the lead investigator. He actually found the dead body, which is pretty impressive. So, no, I'm a skanky stan. <laughs> This is consistent with the pilot, though, because when he was when they were investigating a serial killer, he was the only one doing any investigation. and He's the only one who put together the pieces. Well, I've, I've got a thing about Skanky here and about the actor uh, that I'm excited to share, but I'll hold off because I know I keep interrupting your plot synopsis. But, but I'll say one, one more thing there, Luke, though, is it is a, a funny thing because this show has decided that their main character is a police officer and a vampire. And for whatever reason, they seem not to be able to meld those two into a coherent thing. He's either he's either doing police stuff or he's doing vampire stuff. But you would think there would be some sort of blend of the two. Am I wrong? Mm, I don't know. I hadn't thought about it. Okay. Maybe like a little CSI work. Like he, there's blood at the scene. He like tastes it. Oh, a little lick. Right. I, I like, just oh, I no, just this... mean he should be like I, I would I would like to see a little bit more him like kind of like using vampire powers but like hiding it and and that's why he's like a really good cop or something. I don't right. know. Right. Oh. Oh, he does not hide his vampire powers at all. When we get no, to the I would argue not this, at all. Yeah, <laughs> half a dozen people see him like fly around the room and and just throw people around and flash his fangs. Like he is not concerned. Who's gonna believe them? <laughs> well, as you've mentioned, Hedges now has lost faith in the police due to the death of his wife. Or that is what he's saying anyway. So he does release his ransom style Mel Gibson video, saying, "I'll I'll pay the I'll pay the thing. I'm not gonna work with the police anymore." But Nick, of course, which I think to the credit of Nick, this is, I think, a moment where you see a little bit of, like, police savvy. He finds this whole case is very strange because typically you don't murder a hostage before you even attempt to get any money for them. Like, that's a bit odd to, like, murder the hostage before even trying to get paid. Yeah. So he's suspecting that something else is at play here. Unfortunately for him, his new partner, the psychic, she can't take it anymore. She's quitting this case. Her brain's going crazy, and she thinks she's going insane, so she's off the case. Yeah, and she thinks she's going crazy because she's getting these conflicting images. At some time, she's getting images that seem to be helping her with the case and, and you know, images that are solving the crime. And then at the same time, she's getting these bizarre images she can't explain, which, as we, again, as a viewer know, are images of Nick and Nick's past. That's why she's, she's having this conflict. And Nick goes and has a little heart-to-heart with old coroner Dr. Nat, and they have a little conversation about that time he caused a pilgrim to kill himself and how he's worried he's driving the psychic insane. And she advises him just to come clean. You told me you're a vampire. I didn't mind. I'm sure she'll be fine if you tell her you're a vampire. And Nick's just like, that's good advice. So he flies out of her house right out the window, yeah. goes to the psychic's house. And instead of knocking and, uh, and announcing he's there, he instead breaks through the door into her apartment where she's not expecting him and just appears in her living room. Yeah. Well, I thought this this was the that strong connection where it was like, okay, backstory, forward story, where he's like coming to grips because that's where we see that his his pilgrim lover actually <laughs> hanged, hanged himself, right? So he's standing at the door holding the doorknob, remembering when he was at the door of the barn. Oh, so you <laughs> think he's worried she's also hanging herself inside? Yeah. Well, essentially, yeah, because he's he's driving her crazy. Her this intercut between real ESP and his vampire backstory has like driven her around the bend, right? So much that Stone Tree says, "Yeah, you're driving her crazy," right? And or something's driving her crazy. So he goes and he has that moment where it's like, "I might open the door and find my 
future pilgrim lover has hanged herself or present day lover. So that excuses his break and enter then. Well, he's a police officer, so I, th- I think I think the problem is I think Steve's actually right because they do these scenes right after another. So I think he was you were supposed to have that feeling of oh his he's so worried and so he's going this time he's going to he's not going to make the same mistake he's going to he's just going to barge through. The, the, it's just it's the way it's filmed and it's just the kind of disjointed feeling of this show that you're right, Luke. It's sort of just like why is he breaking into a thing? But you just have to kind of remember oh it's the feeling that he had that you watching it don't really get very much because it's not very good. But I I think it's supposed to be justified that he's so worried. You just don't ever actually see that. It's just like implied. Yeah. It might have worked better if when he busted in, she wasn't like on her couch drinking a glass of wine nonchalantly. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny too because I'm like, this is a hard way to start uh, like a heart to heart with somebody. Like I'm here to come clean with you. So I broke into your home. But she's good with it. She's just like, Oh, I'm I'm relieved that I'm not crazy. Sounds good to me. Well, he just vamp- vampire mind tricks her, right? He's just like, no, I didn't break in. You let me in. <laughs> I like, look how handsome I am. <laughs> well, he shows her his full vampire face, and she's like, oh, that explains it. <laughs> <laughs> what I like is the lighting changes when he reveals it. Like, his, his teeth suck out all the ambient light from the room, <laughs> and his eyes glow. And it's just like, what? That's ridiculous. The important thing is she wants back on the case. Yeah, that's right. It's all that's required. She just needed to know she wasn't going crazy. So we're back. The case is back on. He's got his partner. And the uh, only thing she asks him for, a little uh, prelude to what's to come, is a quick little flight if he can fly. Will you fly me around like Lois Lane? What I love is he's, she asks him, like, can you fly? And he shoots her this like wry little smile. And he's like, I'll show you later. <laughs> but the two of them head off to Hedge's house to meet Skanky, where uh, the investigation continues. And when they arrive, it's a very grim scene at the house because the psychic arrives. Skanky's just like makes a crack about her being a a psychic again. And she's like, your wife is cheating on you. I've seen it in my visions. And we get a whole scene where we have to see what's happening back home, like what Skanky's married life is like. And it is so grim. It is so awful. Like he calls his wife, starts nagging her immediately. She apparently is just yelling at him on the phone. And I'm just like... This is terrible. What is this marriage like at this place? It's so bad. Yeah, this is the longest chunk of notes that I have. Like, the <laughs> darkest turn. And it felt like, she, so she walks by him and says, oh, your your wife was out, or your wife's not home tonight, right? And he's like, oh, no, she's out bowling, right? And I thought that was going to be it. Like, it was a one, like it was a one-liner as they walk into the house, a little bit of a walk and talk and a joke. And as you say, Luke, then we see this, and it's not even a scene. Like It's not like it cuts to the wife. We never see the wife. We just watch Skanky fall apart on one side of the phone conversation and just talking to his wife and being like, oh, yeah, how was bowling? Oh, what did you score? Did you win? And, yeah, she just clearly tears him apart. We watch his marriage disintegrate for a minute and a half while the rest of the show comes to a grinding halt. <laughs> and we do get to see I- him on that giant cell phone, though. The cell phone, yeah, the cell phone was fantastic, but I didn't understand. It was like, you you literally made a character named Skank, Skank, Detective Skanky. He's clearly comic relief, and then you like break him into a million pieces for no reason. Three quarters of the way through your episode, I was I was just flabbergasted by the choices in this show. It was a crazy scene for sure. I was just like, he's so mean to her, and then like. On the other end, we don't hear her side, but she turns it around on him so fast. I'm just like, this marriage is in shambles. I didn't find him mean. I thought he was digging, right? Like, because 
he thinks his wife's cheating. So he's like digging for information about the bowling league. And clearly, and then, then I will he say, makes some he comments asks like, her, he's just like, what'd you bowl tonight? A 46 instead of a hundred, you dummy. He said 87, but that's 46 is a little ridiculous. He said 87, but like, he was nagging her like crazy. He was nagging her a little bit. Yeah. But then she, she also said, oh, I'm at home playing poker. Right, it's like what she does. He's like, I didn't even think you knew how to play poker. I analyze this scene a number. I can't of believe how much time scene. we're spending on this scene that has nothing to do with anything in this episode. It doesn't it's matter. Great. It's it's amazing amazing scene. <laughs> so odd. It was so odd. So odd. Because you went from playing tic tac toe with the dead chalk outline chalk to like this man's whole life coming undone in in forty five minutes. It was I couldn't believe it. It's true. Last time we heard from Skanky, he was complaining about having to eat tofu to stay alive. His wife wanted to keep him alive, and now their marriage is in shambles. <laughs> and anyway, we'll get back to the case. Uh, the reinvigorated psychic, she's back at the house, and she has a vision. It's pretty much the same vision she had before, where there was a domestic squabble, but now she says, mm, I think the wife and daughter know a secret about hedges. And uh, the police go and check the wiretap they have set up at his house to see if the kidnappers called. And it's very strange. They did call, but uh, Hedges stopped the recording just as soon as the call came in. So that's very strange. They're a little out of lead, so they go visit Dr. Nat, the coroner, and she's doing an autopsy on the dead wife. And as she's doing it, she's like, there's only one strange thing in her stomach contents. She had powdered milk, and that's for poor people, not rich people (laughs) like her. I did like this. This is pretty funny. And they're like, hmm, where would you get powdered milk from? <gasps> Doesn't human touch the man's foundation run a food bank? They probably give out powdered milk to poor people. I just love how long we've been spinning our wheels and wasting time on this show, doing no police work whatsoever. And at the very end, the thing, the little tenuous connection that solves the case is powdered milk in their stomach because they're not poor. I just, it, it's so dumb. It's wonderful. <laughs> it had a lot to, I was also just like, this is great. Good job, everybody. Yeah. You can see how far television has come. Cause like CSI <laughs> does that work in 30 seconds. They find the dead body. Somebody makes a quip. The autopsy is done. Like this show would be over in two minutes if that was the case. <laughs> Nick flies over to the food bank. He runs out of the coroner's office. He flies over using vampire vine ba- power powers. And he leaves a psychic behind, even though she's like eager to come because as she says, I should come with you. I want to confront Hedges because this is personal. And I'm like, what? And she's like, explain. She goes on to explain. She's like, one time I went on a mission uh, that his charity did. So I'm kind of offended that he turned out to be a bad guy. I'm like, so this is why it's personal. (laughs) (laughs) And when Nick gets to this food bank, he sees the whole conspiracy unravel. The, The kidnappers get out of a car. They've still got the daughter in the trunk. And they just, like, out loud discuss everything that's happened. So it's very convenient for us, the audience, to get caught up. But Hedges, in fact, hired them. They're hitmen. He wanted them to kill his wife and daughter because his wife and daughter had discovered that he'd been stealing from his charities in order to maintain their lifestyle. And I was just like, okay, let's assume this is true. Let's assume the wife and daughter at this point are mad at their dad, husband, because he's been stealing money from the charities so that they can remain rich. When we met them, they know this information, and they are on a spending spree (laughs) spending this charity's money like they don't give a shit at all. Yeah. It's also a weird response of murder. You know, it's like, even if, like, you were caught, like, but he doesn't, he doesn't, even if he doesn't want to go to jail or whatever, he doesn't, that doesn't make you a murderer. Like, he doesn't, there, there hasn't, they, the only thing they imply is that, like, the marriage is having some trouble, but that's, that's a long way from having trouble in your marriage to murdering your wife and daughter. 
That's what I would say. It's not the murder that's so crazy. It's that you just would jump to murdering your own family. It's just like right to murdering your own family to cover yeah. up your crimes. Good thing for that powder milk. I like that he's hired just the most untrustworthy assassins. He's paid them $500,000 to kill two people, and they're like, nah, we killed your wife, but we like your daughter. We're actually going to keep her around. <laughs> now, they don't say it with that kind of charming uh, lightness that I have. They really, They really say, like, we like your daughter, and it's like, what are you implying there? And then they inf- they force him to shoot her. Yeah, that's the most insane part. Is these are terrible hitmen. He's hired them to kill his family, and they've killed the wife. But they're like, listen, give us our five hundred thousand dollars, and if you want your daughter dead, you- we're gonna make you do it yourself. Here's a gun. Shoot your own daughter. And I'm just like, you've hired the worst hitmen. They- there's no honor. But to be fair, he's happy. He takes that gun. He's like, all right, I'll blow her away. He like opens the drug. He's going to shoot her. No problem. And it's at that moment, the psychic has, I don't know how she got there so quickly, but she's also driven over after Nick left her behind. And she just confronts the man with a gun as if she can do something about it. Yeah, but but I th- but it doesn't really matter because while she's doing it, Nick, Nick, vampire attacks the two guys. Aerial attack styles. <laughs> yeah, he's been hiding, watching it all from the from the uh, rafters, which I was wondering, I'm like, when is he going to intervene about this daughter getting shot? And I, I think he was going to let it happen. Well, he needed the evidence to actually yeah, put him away. That's when he was doing his cop work. That's true. He didn't have any evidence yet. <laughs> but yes, he flies in. He uh, vampire beats up some hitmen. He grabs hedges like it's a WWE match, lifts them over his head, and then tosses them into some boards. Um, but unfortunately, during the melee, the psychic is shot. And she's on the ground. She's dying. And Nick's like, I promised you earlier I'd fly you somewhere. So he picks her up and supermans her out of there. And as they're flying through the night sky, she dies in his arms. Yeah, that was it. And so he he, he killed another one. <laughs> and it leads to, I think, my favorite part of the episode. I don't know if you'll agree, but it's a two-minute sexy brooding scene set to an original song by singer-songwriter Lori Yates titled The Night Calls My Name. And... Yeah. In it, he uh, he throws a ball against the wall in his apartment, bouncing it like he's in prison. And then there's a shot where he plays one-person chess. So he's playing a game of chess by himself. His shirt is open. His chest is bare. <laughs> and he lays on the ground as the camera <laughs> raises above him. And he, like, lays there all sexily. I'm like, oh, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. Absolutely. And, and the entire plot is retold in voiceover. I loved it. My note was, is this episode short? Why is this still going? <laughs> yes. They, they could not get another person to buy commercial time and clearly needed to stretch it out two more minutes. This is a classic of this genre. You need a brooding scene where you're regretting something you did, but a sexy brooding scene where your shirt is open. And I was just like, they're delivering. They're giving us exactly what we want. But it's clearly bullshit because he let her die for sure. Like he could have flown her to any hospital. There are a number of hospitals all over the city of Toronto. And he's like, he regretted telling her that he was a vampire and so he let her get shot and then let her bleed out no it was a different time they wouldn't take psychics in the hospital (laughs) (laughs) second class citizens like oh no you have to go across the street we don't don't serve you here i was really obsessed with this uh, original song the night calls my name and i was looking into it there are two forever night albums full of original music from this show so we have a lot more original music to look forward to did anybody win a grammy that's what i want to (laughs) know Oh, that's a good question. I never, I don't didn't appear to be any Grammys that I saw, but I okay. could be wrong. I have to go back and check out those soundtracks. Maybe they won. The, maybe they swept the Grammys. Or a, Ju- I guess a Juno would be the appropriate, uh, the appropriate Canadian alternative. Um, hey, I got a quick question. The the title of this episode is "Dying to Know You," 
does, <laughs> does, does that work? Is that yeah? She wanted yeah. to know who he was, and she died for him. And so did his pilgrim lover, right? He wanted okay. the truth. He wanted the honesty okay. from him. And yeah, all right, it works. It everybody works is dying to know the vampire, dying to know Nick. Now, I thought this two minutes of him brooding, I assume this was the end of the episode. We're getting this sweet scene where he sexually broods over the death of this woman. But somehow there is still another scene left. It cuts and we get a weird denouement to the thing where they give some exposition about how uh, Hedges was arrested for embezzling, uh, I guess, in addition to the murder. And then they do a comic, this comic bit where Skanky eats a, eats a protein shank and a f- tofu burger. And I was just like, what a weird way to end this episode with this little gag about Skanky hating tofu. <laughs> And Skanky, like you, there were two bits in there. Skanky drinks the like blade style faux blood protein shake that the coroner has been concocting for Nick, right? Like that's its own thing. You could have yes, stopped that's there. something else. Yeah, exactly. Right. Oh, but then, and then he takes a, like a bite of burger to w- wash it out or clean his palate. And then there's a tofu joke layered on top. And I, let me remind you, Skanky has just found out his wife is cheating on him earlier on in the episode, and he's back to being comic relief. Now, somehow this is the worst part of his night. <laughs> Poor guy. It was great. I was just like, I love everything about this show. It, you never know what's coming next. Yeah. So I'm just going to gonna interject real quickly. You guys have done me an incredible favor here. So I was traveling uh, with my wife, Jane. Uh, we were in the Pearson International Airport in Toronto, and I noticed a man in line. It was like early on, we were in the food court, we were lined up, and this man was with his son. And I'm like, I, I know this guy. Like, I know this face. And I promised myself I would never talk to a celebrity unless I knew their name. Like, I knew some stuff. Like, I wanted to go in knowing who they were. And I'm like, well, I'm never going to have this opportunity again. I don't leave my neighborhood. I got to talk to this guy. And I say to him, excuse me, sir. I'm really, I'm sorry to bother you. But you're a famous actor. Like, I've seen you on things. Would you, you know, can you tell me who you are? <laughs> no, no. And he's like, yes, I'm Brad Pitt. And he had a chuckle at my expense, and he walked away. And since it's been a, at least a decade. I've been looking for this guy. I'm, a, I'm like, I know he's in early 90s stuff. Is he in the X-Files? I watched the X-Files. He wasn't in it. I'm like, is he in Star Trek? He wasn't in Star Trek. Finally, I found him in Forever Night. <laughs> John Capilos, John Capilos, who plays Skanky, was the man that I met in the airport a decade ago that I have been looking for. And I just like it, it's it's ended a chapter of my life so succinctly and so well. So I want to thank both of you for bringing me John Capilos and solving this mystery. And he was the man that I met in the airport. Imagine how much better that interaction would have been if you had walked up and said, I love Forever Night. I bet he get it all. He would get it all the time. But I was, <laughs> I was too young. I was too young to know that he was skanky. I would have loved to have said that to him. My favorite part is you saw this man skanky, and you went back on every promise you'd ever made to yourself about not accosting an actor who you weren't sure who they were. I had to do it. I had to do it. Oh dear, that's a great story. Thank you, Steve. It it, it makes this <laughs> podcast worthwhile. <laughs> well, it's all down here from from there because this next episode that we're going to talk about is. Big old pile. It's a big old pile of shit. All right. Here's the INDB summary for season one, episode 21, 1966. I need to find the book quickly. Before someone else does. Yeah, well, there are others who want the book as badly as I do. Tote, the cure? 
Or to prevent me from taking it? Oh. Then the book is very important to you. The book is my freedom. A hostage incident takes Nick back to Berlin in 1966. That's all. That was it? That's it, yeah. So the hostage incident takes place in present day in police headquarters. Yes, but it reminds Nick of a time he went to East Berlin. <laughs> which which makes no sense because I said at the beginning of this podcast, these two stories don't connect in any way. No. And, and, and they're both bad. Um, I'm just going to say this because we're going to go through it. Here's here's a here's some better episode. Like how about Nick has to solve so there's gonna be a hostage situation of a guy breaking into the police department and he's gonna take Natalie hostage and the whole that whole scene is just gonna play over forty five times, not progressing at all, with nothing changing, and the guy's saying, Get bring my brother out and he goes, We can't. That's what all that the whole episode. What would have been better is if Nick had to solve the hostage situation without being able to use his vampire powers and instead using police work and we got to see like maybe his humanity side of himself. Maybe he learned that he needs to do things like there is some still humanity left in him. That's an episode or God forbid, like, I don't know, the other characters solve a case while Nick's out doing something, anything, anything other than what we got. Well, I love the opening of this episode. I thought it was tense. I thought it was tight. Did you? Did you? <laughs> I actually did like the opening of this because what we see at the top is a man with a shotgun and he's got a noose tied to the end of this sawed off shotgun. And I was just like, I don't know what's about to happen, but this looks bad. Brilliant setup, though. Brilliant concept. Yeah, I was, I was, I was on the edge of my seat when I, I was like, I don't know what's coming, but it's gonna be, it's gonna be terrible. <laughs> but what he's doing is he's approaching the police station, and he meets, he meets Doctor Nat outside. I guess she's dropping by to say hi to people. I don't know if the coroner's office is at this station, but she's dropping by anyway. He throws the noose around her neck, so the shotgun is like stuck to her back, and he walks in and he demands that they release his brother, who they arrested earlier that day, or he's gonna kill Doctor Nat. And uh, that basically kicks off this hostage situation and. It's a bit of a bottle episode in this flat, in this sort of real-time part because, like, all the characters are there. Dr. Natch, Skanky, Captain Stonetree, Nick. They're all sort of in the office when this sort of takes place. Did you guys give a shout-out to uh, Captain Stonetree? We did in the we first did. episode. Uh, Gary Farmer? Yeah, like an indigenous police chief like or police captain. I thought that was pretty pretty impressive for early 90s television. He's a great, he's a great casting choice. He's a great uh, character actor, so I was very happy to see him as well. Yeah, he's got like a, a particular way of speaking. He comes with a lot of power, a lot of presence. I thought he was great in, in some of this episode. I definitely agree. Um, but as Jordan has already implied, this hostage drama is essentially just the B plot of the thing. It's it, it's the thing that's supposed to trigger this memory to the time he was in East Berlin in 1966. And as we've said. Finding what the connection is is nearly impossible. There does not appear to be any overlap between these two stories at all. Yeah, it just and it was so curious because again, like the last episode, and, and this is now us. What uh, we're we're at episode twenty one. So that was episode six. We're we're further into the season. You think they would the episodes would get a little tighter and they would have kind of found their formula, but as not great as that last episode was, you're like, okay, he felt guilty and he doesn't want to feel guilty again. It's like, all right, that's that's fine. This is there's. There's nothing. It's like, hey, remember two different times I was in a room? Yeah, and I said these exact lines. Like, <laughs> I I think you were onto something, Jordan, with like him learning something about the value of human life, right? If maybe in 1966 he had sacrificed and lied to the people to mm-hmm. get what he wanted, and in 1991 he learned that that was not the way to go, that he needed to empathize with people or put other people above his own wants and needs like that would have been interesting 
Well, it's because it's the there's there should be inbuilt tension of a hostage situation. Now there's none in this because it does it does it doesn't get tighter as it goes because they just keep repeating the same scene because they want to keep going back to Berlin. But then every time you're in Berlin, you're like, oh, this is so boring, nothing's happening. Then they go back to the police station, like this is so boring, nothing's happening, and they go back and forth. And it, and you're right, it's like just to, the, it wouldn't take too much thought to go. Well, what could he have learned in the past that will inform the future? That seems quite simple if that's the formula they want to use, but they are just, for whatever reason, refuse to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get into that because there are a lot of there are not a lot of twists and turns, as you've said, but in the sort of current time storyline, I think we can cover that very quickly before we move on to the a plot because it's just it's it's very straightforward. Mm-hmm. We keep cutting back to throughout the episode, but really not much happens. Essentially, this guy takes a hostage of, of Nat, wants his brother. Uh, Nick and Stone Tree do absolutely the worst hostage negotiations I've ever seen. They like all they do is like push this guy to shoot Nat. That's all they're doing at all <laughs> times. They're like, we don't care, shoot her. Give, we don't care, shoot her. She's a coroner. Yeah, and they're basically like, you're never gonna get out, so do what you want. We're gonna kill you anyways. That's basically all. That's the whole thing. You're like, okay, well, that was something. Imagine you're Doctor Nat, and these are your coworkers. You're just like, you guys, you guys, come on, please, don't. You gotta do something. No, not this. <laughs> I, I do like when it ramps up, though, Luke. Well, as it continues, a, a cop does pull a gun or makes a sudden move, and the, the gunman pulls out his uh, his pistol that he has in addition to his shotgun, and he shoots Captain Stone Tree. And I know we were just complimenting the actor, but him getting shot was the funniest thing. He falls <laughs> over like a sack of potatoes. <laughs> I thought he was faking it at first. The acting was so bad, I'm like, oh, he's, he's faking it that he's been shot so that he can shoot him later. Nope, nope. I was like, nope, nope. Took a bullet right to the chest. But thankfully at the end we find out that the bullet just hit, quote, the meat. So he's fine. He can walk it off. (laughs) Which also leads to a running gag at the end where Skanky keeps calling him overweight and trying to walk Uh, it back. You've glossed over the fact that at one point the hostage taker pulls out a grenade? Well, that's coming up because after he shoots Stone Tree, he's right. like, all right, you guys, this is enough of this. I've got a grenade. I can blow us all up. And the hostage taker then does the only negotiating in the episode where he says, can you please empty the precinct of all these police officers and like civilians so there's a little less people in here? And Nick's like, fine, fine. We'll give in to this demand. We'll let all these people go. And in return, I'll take your brother out of the out of confinement. And as soon as everyone in the police station has left, Nick's just like, just kidding. I lied. I'm not taking your brother out. Blow her up. I don't care. And I'm just like, these guys are the worst. <laughs> nego- like, he literally, like, Nick is perpetually pushing him to kill Nat. He's always asking her to do it. I, I was like because losing Nat my mind. Because Nat knows that he's a vampire, she has to die. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, you guys have a lot of international listeners, so they might think that, that Canada being, you know, kind of connected and near the United States is sort of like a crime-ridden ice-covered cesspool where grenades are easily acquired. They're just hanging around everywhere. (laughs) I haven't seen one yet. We do not have, like, we're not a gun-toting society, although there are hunters and fishers all over our great nation. Uh, Getting guns, especially handguns, are very difficult. Sawed-off shotguns, I would assume, even more difficult. Grenades, probably impossible. So the fact that this man pulls out a grenade and just holds it out in front of him and was like, I'm going to blow up everybody. It was just out of left field. And after he's got this grenade out, like he's pulled the pin, he's going to kill everybody. Nick double crosses him on the negotiation for no apparent reason. And then 
this this hostage situation just keeps getting weirder because after he does that, the hostage taker just lets Nat go. He just like lets her walk away from him. So Skanky has a clean shot to shoot him. Like I don't know why he released his hostage for no apparent reason. Skanky shoots him, and the obviously as he's getting shot, he drops the live grenade. And uh, Nick has to, like, leap forward and use his vampire strength to crush the grenade in his hands to prevent it from exploding. And so he's holding this, like, clearly crushed grenade. And you're like, well, how did I can explain this away? Cut to, uh, the boys in the lab said it was probably a dud. I'm like, okay, I guess problem solved. <laughs> oh. You know what's funny? It, it's I think I think both Steve and I didn't didn't quite understand because I thought the same thing when I, it, the way the prop looked I thought it was that he had thrown like a rubber one and they were like oh it was like like a gag but but I guess that's what it was Luke he crushed it with his hand because later when they said it was a dud I was like well it's clearly a dud look at it, it looks like rubber but uh, <laughs> but I, I I didn't realize it was just a bad prop I missed they that he had crushed it at all so when they're like it's a dud I'm like you just undercut all of the tension in this sh- terrible episode by saying it was a dud the whole time. So no, I, I think that. it was a cover-up for his vampire powers. Okay, all right, because then he'd have to kill everyone in the precinct if they found out. <laughs> so he should have just let the thing explode, really. I mean, that pretty much covers the hostage drama. They've killed the ho- they killed the hostage taker, and Nick stops the grenade going off. I do want to note one thing before we move on from it, and I don't know if either of you paid attention to it, but right off the top of this like scene in these in the precinct, the kind of uh, you know talking they're doing before the gunman walks in is that they're like. They've got a convenience store owner who's there. They brought him in with his family because he shot a guy who tried to rob him. And now they're there kind of taking statements from him. And right. this this family will be in the background of all the scenes. This family, this civilian family huddled up in a corner during the hostage taking. And when the hostage taker says, let's get everybody out of here, the entire family leaves with the exception of the shop owner. He, for no apparent reason, remains in the room. And then at the end, when the hostage taker, for no apparent reason, releases his hostage, Dr. Nat, the shop owner then, like, grabs her and covers her her with his body. And I'm just like, who is this man? Why has he been so prominently featured through this entire thing? He doesn't have a line. He's just, like, referenced vaguely at the beginning. And he's just, like, perpetually doing things in the background of this episode. I didn't notice because I was perpetually looking for a noose the whole time to hang myself because of how bad this episode was. Oh, because you were Nick's pilgrim lover. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I did zone out quite a bit. This this episode was a slog. And I I really hope that you not a hope because I know you have to do it, but I wish we didn't have to talk about the other story. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about East Berlin in 1966. Nick has Nick has flown there in search of an ancient Sanskrit manuscript uh, that he thinks contains a cure for vampirism called the Aberat. His research has brought him to Germany because he discovered that sometime uh, earlier in the century, the Germans had stole the uh, stole the book from Iraq and brought it here. And it's still sort of packed up somewhere because the Nazis were using it in an attempt to uh, create flying Nazis. They were going over this book hoping they could make flying Nazis using powers. It's how they made the, the Luftwaffe. <laughs> um, um, I, I th- it, Luke, this is mostly a question for you, but... Um... We've this I, I we kind of I think spoken that in the first uh, the first podcast we did on this that you know there's going to be probably multiple episodes where he uh, shows flashbacks where he's trying to find a different way to stop being a vampire because again he's this brooding vampire so he doesn't want to be that do you think it 
undercuts the show at all or at least in the universe that there's so many possible ways for him to stop being a vampire like it's almost like why are you worrying about it there's clearly gonna be like there's a hundred ways to do it because after he, he does, loses one book he's like well there's a mug and then the mug goes away he's like don't worry there's a, a staircase it's like it doesn't seem to be any shortage of, of ways to stop being a vampire i guess so but i mean is the fugitive bad because he has to find different ways of proving his innocence <laughs> um no i guess i guess it's it's more that this is it's such a specific thing isn't it like the idea of immortality is such a thing i just i don't know if it's better or worse like if it, if it was one thing where like let's say he just has to kill Lacroix, um and he can't do it ever would that be different uh, as opposed to you know i don't i don't know i think this is pretty i don't i don't think it's an issue necessarily like, i think this is a pretty standard thing for a show of this era when you have a thing you're trying to solve like maybe there's usually multiple ways of doing it but we yeah. know why the fugitive is trying to prove his innocence like that makes sense right like that he's he's a man on the run he needs to prove that he's innocent so that he can go back to his normal life i didn't find any reason in this episode why nick does not want to be a vampire like he's done with it he's over it man he doesn't want to kill anymore but he doesn't have to kill anymore apparently he eats like animal blood drinks animal blood he said that in the last episode he's got this blade protein thing that he's doing like he's tired of the night shift is he tired of the night shift? Like, does he miss things? Like, that's the thing. I didn't really... There was no explanation for why he didn't want to be a vampire anymore. Now, I don't know his relationship with eyebrows. Uh, Lacroix? La yeah. Lacroix? Like, the drink? Um, so, maybe there's a weird thing going on there where he doesn't want to be a vampire anymore because of that. But, like, it it didn't make any sense. It just seemed like another excuse for him to hit on a lady at, at a place of business, this time a library. <laughs> I mean, I think this is pretty standard vampire fare. Is usually your hero is one who wants to stop being a vampire. Not, not my vampire heroes, thank you. <laughs> At any rate, he has found this new book. He's off to try to get it in East Germany. And when he goes to the library, he meets the night custodian and his growing son and daughter. And they've been searching the uh, library that his, their dad works at, hoping to find old plague catacombs that are buried underneath Berlin that they might be able to use to escape to West Germany. Now, Nick, of course, he's been alive a long time. He happened to be, I guess, in Germany when they built these catacombs. So he knows exactly where they're located. And so he basically offers an exchange. You help me find the book I need, and I'll get you out of uh, communism. <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll get you over the wall. And, and I'm just going to say something. Uh, later on in the episode, at the very, very end of this, um, uh, there's a there's a moment where, like, because that's going to be kind of a running thing. It's like there's catacombs, and they lead to the other end, uh, uh, the other side of the wall, so I can get you, lead you over there. But then later on, he's flying someone, and I was like, why don't you just fly him over the wall? It seems very easy. You're already flying them. Yeah, but he doesn't want them to know he's a vampire. <laughs> yeah, but that guy was that guy's knocked out. He doesn't know what's happening anyway. He should just knock them all out. He tells them to sleep. He takes them to the catacombs. Just saying. Use your vampire powers. <laughs> you want more vampire powers is yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. Pick a, pick a lane, Nick. Pick a lane. <laughs> yeah, That's exactly. what we're asking for. Well, in, in true fashion to Forever Night, the uh, adult daughter, why, she's the only one who can read Sanskrit, so Nick's going to need her to find the book. And also, he's going to need her to have some sexy time you know, a little bit of flirting, a little bit of uh, eye eyeball movement between the two of them, a little bit of kissing later on. Mm -hmm. And the son, he goes back to pack to leave. He's like, we're leaving tomorrow. They're going to find the book. It's going to be great. And as uh, Steve mentioned, Nick's maker, 
the original vampire LaCroix, he's followed Nick to Berlin. And as we know from the pilot, he'll do he'll do nothing if not stop Nick from becoming human again for some reason. Well, I think I think that he's he's I, I think he even explicitly says whether it's um, it makes a lot of sense or not. But he's sort of insulted that this this gift he has given him that he doesn't want it anymore. Mm. That's true. He's just like, don't return this gift. It's a good gift. Yeah. There's some downsides. And LaCroix is doing this by reporting the family and Nick to the, I guess, uh, communist secret police, I guess, is who he's, he's reporting them to, this uh, family on the run. And there's not a lot with LaCroix. It doesn't really make a lot of sense why he's here. But man, oh, man, does this guy chew a piece of scenery. <laughs> there's a great scene where the he's talking to the secret police. He's like, yeah, 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 find him. But I get Nick. I don't care what you do with the family, but I get Nick. And the secret police are like, oh, yeah, how are you going to stop us? Why don't we just take you and interrogate you? And like LaCroix leans forward. He's just like, I'd love to see you try. Yeah. Now, are, are we speaking, assuming that he's speaking German to them? No, I'm assuming everyone's every, speaking everybody English. Everybody speaks English? Okay. All right. I thought, I mean, there are a lot of classy, classy East Berlin accents going on here in the underground uh, library, as well as in the Gestapo secret police that's going on. But I didn't know exactly what LaCroix was doing. <laughs> no, I think he's got his own special accent. Okay. Of course, the son of the family is captured and tortured, and he won't give up any information. Um, but the police are able to determine his dad works this library. So they head over there. They're going to raid the library. And Nick is forced to use his vampire powers to help the father and daughter escape and get them to the catacombs. But of course, he also has to go save the son. So we get a weird scene where he flies over. I don't know how he knows which cop car the son's in, but he, he saves the son of a cop car. As you said, he glamours him so he falls asleep and then he flies them so they all meet up the catacombs so they can escape together yeah again though fly him to the end of the catacombs and they're like where's my brother like don't worry he'll be there when you make them at the end i'll I'll prove that i'm a good guy because you're gonna see him at the end of the tunnel you just think nick's methods are a little sloppy you'd like to see him like streamline a bit more yeah that's right (laughs) (laughs) nick races them out of the catacombs he fights a couple police that are in there he like collapses the catacombs behind them so i guess the police die inside of the catacombs i'm not really sure what his (laughs) intention was there but what we see is he gets them out he gets them to west berlin and they're very grateful. It's uh, it was it was a, a great honorable deed that Nick did, and then Nick flies back to East Berlin because he still doesn't have that book. I was like, I assumed he wasn't going to go back. I assumed he assumed it was lost, but he flies back to East Berlin, and when he gets to the library, Lacroix has set the library on fire. But he's waited for Nick to come back. He's holding the Aberat. He's like, you wanted this? Well, I'm burning it. And he just throws it in the fire in front of Nick. And Nick's, Nick's lost another way to become a human again. Yeah. And and that's where the two stories line up, right? Because he dives for the ab- Aberat and he doesn't catch it. But in present day, he dives for the grenade and <laughs> does catch it. And that was the connective oh, tissue. So he, what he learned in East Berlin was to a better like baseball catch he's a little better at catching something you know what he learned to be a goddamn vampire because he doesn't have to (laughs) die for things he can fly (laughs) it's terrible episode but i would i would argue the best scene is this last scene where uh we go back to the present and he listens to the longest voicemail ever left which just (laughs) which just answers a lot of questions that the viewer had yeah it's very funny put an original song underneath it it could have been a two-minute music video (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's very funny because he gets home he's got a message on his answer machine after this hostage crisis it's the german woman from his flashback apparently he'd recently written them a letter and they were grateful to receive it and he gives her and she gives him a family update turns out everything's great dad's still alive 
Her her brother's doing great. She has a son. He's turning 16. Named it after Nick. So there's another little Nick running around out there. I like what she's doing. She goes, I named it after Nick, of course. I was like, I wouldn't say it's of course. Well, it's his son. So, yeah, of course. <laughs> oh, well, maybe that's what it is. For sure they boned. And she talks about how she's dedicated her life to getting her doctorate and attempting to find another copy of the Aberat so that they can repay Nick for his kindness by turning him human. So there's a whole German family out there who's very aware of this vampire. Yeah, that's why he's closed tabs on them to know what's going on. In case he needs to kill them at a drop of a hat. It's 25 years later, right? 1966 yeah. to 1991. Mm-hmm. We know it's 91 because they said the wall fell two years earlier. Yeah, that's right. The father was 105 years old in 1966. <laughs> and 25 years later, he's still alive and kicking. Like, just a little bit unbelievable. That's the thing you found the most unbelievable these two episodes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm down with psychics working for the Toronto police. I'm okay with that. I, f- I would love to live in a city where that was the case. <laughs> well, I mean, that wraps up this episode. Do you guys have any final things we didn't cover in either of these episodes before we move on to ratings? Oh, my God. I, no. No notes for this episode. <laughs> and again, the, 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 there was the new villain for me because um, he was new in my experience. But, like, he just looks like a villain, uh, LaCroix. So that was the thing that I was like, oh, okay, interesting here. We're getting like a, a mythology episode. Yeah, he's in a lot of the episodes. I was disappointed we didn't get to see much of him either because he's, he's the best part of some of these episodes. I think he really chews that scenery, but uh, mm-hmm. sadly, only a little glimpse of LaCroix this time. Mm-hmm. Well, you know how this works, Steve. Out of a possible 10 stars, how do you feel about dying to know you? Look, dying to know you has got a lot going for it <laughs> with some extremely odd choices. And it lives in the great lineage of psychics joining police duos where one is all in and one is suspect. And we have seen some great episodes of television, the most notable being Clive Buckman's Final Repose from the X-Files that had psychics being involved with Mulder and Scully. And I think this this sits honorably. So out of 10 fangs... I had a good time with this. I'm going to give this a seven fangs. Seven fangs out of ten. Seven fangs out of ten. So it's like three vampires and then one with a tooth broken off. Correct. Cool. Great. I think this wasn't terrible. I mean, it wasn't great, but it wasn't terrible. It was right down the middle for me. I I was feeling like this is probably just a straight up five for this kind of show. I think it's delivering everything a mid-tier sexy vampire show delivers but it's just like the most anemic plot and i think that's the case for both episodes they're just really anemic not a lot happens but they they hit all the beats they don't want to spend a lot of time worrying about like how we go about police procedures or how we put the mystery together because they want to spend more time with nick and whoever the romantic lead of that episode is making eyes at each other because i think that's what they think we're tuning in for is uh the sexiness so i I want to give it a five, but then they did that two-minute uh, sexy brooding scene with that song, and I, I loved every second of that, so I'm going to go 5.5. <laughs> that only gets a half? It bumps it up a half. A half a fang. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm right in between you guys. I'm going to give it a six out of ten. I say it's probably so far the best of the episodes, which isn't maybe saying much, but I was the weird thing, kind of Luke, to your point, is that the actual plot and kind of the twist of this is almost like children's TV. You know what I mean? Like it's almost like something you'd see in like, I don't know, like, like 
1966 Batman show. But 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 at the same time, it's mixed with like this like very weird adult eroticism. And so you're like, I don't know what I'm supposed to get out of this show. Am I supposed to like like is the like to your point? I think maybe it's that you're supposed to be so invested in the sexiness of that that like the plot just can be mindless. I mean, I think we'd all feel differently if this was the German version. We'd be far more invested. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Anyways, but six. I think six. It's not. It was. It was the, the best we've seen so far. All right, and there's 1966. Um, what do you think, Steve? Oh God, look. Uh, I I want to say zero right off the bat, but that's not accurate, right? So let's give one for F- Gary Farmer because he's mm-hmm. there. So we'll get one Fang for that. <laughs> John Canadian John Delancey Lacroix is there, so you can have another one for that. And I think that oh no, and I'll you know what I'll do I'll do a half because when the hostage taker shows up, the very like when he pops up in at the very first scene he's in like the uh, he's in the parking lot and he's about to take the woman hostage. He's incredibly polite. He's the most <laughs> Canadian hostage taker taker there's ever been. So another full fang for him, three fangs out of ten. Three fangs out of ten. Pretty good. I didn't hate this one as much as uh, I think maybe other people did. I liked that it took place in East Berlin. There's something about just like the Cold War behind that behind the wall. I was like, I don't think there's enough vampire mythology shows that like take their vampires into like East Berlin. I haven't seen that very frequently, so I, I appreciated that. Again, it's an anemic plot. Like, very little happens. We skimmed over it so quickly. There's so many, like, back and forth between the two plots that don't really connect, that don't really have a lot going on. But I, at the same time, I was like, no, this is fine. This is fine. I'm going to go five with an extra half for it being in East Berlin. (laughs) I'm on with uh, Steve. I actually think Steve was being too generous with it. I'm going to give it a two out of ten, and I think that's generous. It's like two time-wasting plots jammed together with no twists, no turns, nothing to surprise the audience. Uh, we don't learn anything about Nick. We don't learn anything about the world. It's just like 45 minutes I'll never get back. Two out of ten is generous. It was terrible. <laughs> Five is a laughably high score for this episode. I'm, I think I'm... this show is just fine. I think this is a really mid-level vampire show. It's delivering everything you want in a vampire show, just like not th- not at a very high quality. <laughs> I'm going to say, if you're looking for East Berlin set <laughs> fun romps in the horror genre, both Suspirias are set in East Berlin. No, no, no. I want vampires. I said sp- very specifically. You did. You did. Yeah. Maybe only Levers Left Alive. I'm not sure where that was set. Maybe that's got a little East Berlin in there for you. But <laughs> Well, that wraps up for this episode. So, Steve, thank you for joining us again. Again, my pleasure. I really do appreciate you bringing me uh, a skanky. Uh, I might go back to Forever Night. I might, you know, I'll have to look up like a BuzzFeed top 10 episodes and pop in and out because I don't think I can make it through three seasons. But it was a joy. And it's always lovely to see Toronto being represented as Toronto. There is the full on CN Tower Skydome shot uh, to open every episode of Forever Night across a four-minute credit sequence. Um, so, yeah, thanks, guys. I really appreciate this. Thank you for bringing Forever Night into my life, finally. I know. I'm glad you got to know who that actor was you saw a decade ago now. So excited. And, listener, if you want to make us watch a little more Forever Night, there's something we've missed. We're, we're already at episode 21 of season one. If you're like, you guys missed one of the best season one episodes, we've got bonus episodes for charity. 
You can learn all about it on our website, continuumdrag.podbean.com. But essentially what it is, is you do a donation to a charity selected by one of our past guests. We'll go back. We'll watch any episode of a show from a series that we skipped episodes of. So whether we are doing a best of run, whether we use the escape pod, we'll go back. We'll pick pick one of these episodes we didn't get a chance to watch from a series we've already kind of gone through. And we'll go back. We'll revisit it, see how we feel about it, uh, uh, you know, a little bit uh, past when we got through it. Um, but it, it, that's available to you. You can check it out on our social media. There's links there. And then, of course, at continuumdrag.podb.com. If you have any questions, as always, email us at continuumdrag at gmail.com. And then on social media this week, we'll have some clips from Forever Night, uh, some vampire faces. Um, I don't know, probably some flying around, I assume. Maybe maybe squishing of a grenade. <laughs> this is a little squishy grenade. Prove it. Prove that he squishes it. That's what I want to see. <laughs> And you can find all that at uh, Continuum Drag is the handle. It's on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook now. So we got, you can go all those places to find clips from this show. Ooh, Facebook. That about wraps it up. Yeah, so, Jordan, this has been another great episode. <laughs> Listeners, we'll see you next week. And see you then. Steve, thanks for being here. Thanks, guys. Continuum Drag is recorded in Toronto, Ontario, and Seoul, South Korea. Theme music by James Rick Seedler. Produced by Jordan Dalek and Luke Black. Special thanks to Aaron Younes. <laughs>